Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today, our guest is Dr. Joan Braun, an academic and social justice advocate who, amongst other things, is a member of the International Council of Experts for the Gonzaga Institute for Hate Studies. Thanks for joining us, Joan. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to study hate? Yeah, so I did not start out with the Institute for Hate Studies. A lot of what I was doing was community activism. I did academic research sort of on fascism for my doctoral dissertation, where I was thinking about the risks of certain kinds of apocalyptic, catastrophic thinking. But really, my focus on this has been mostly since the election of Trump and trying to understand what's happening currently. So I started giving a lot of presentations in the community about Steve Bannon in particular to begin with, and then sort of educating the community around some of the things we were seeing where white nationalist groups and far-right militias were active in the community and people were trying to make sense of what was happening and how to push back. So I've been sort of on the, the ground floor of both theory and practice which is kind of an interesting place to be in terms of this stuff. How was it to do your dissertation on this apocalyptic thinking and then see it uh, walking around the White House? Yeah, really, really wild. Yeah. So I, I did my dissertation on this guy, Eric Fromm, who was a member of the Frankfurt School and a socialist activist and public intellectual. And Fromm had a critique of what he called catastrophic messianism, which he saw as arising after World War One in a sort of mood of despair and helping to drive the rise of fascism in Germany. So it's a sort of helplessness in the face of, a, a sort of giving up in the face of trying to transform the world. An escape from freedom is one of his terms. It's a sort of active embrace of the world's injustice at its most nihilistic. So it sort of says, well, you know, there's there's nothing actually that can be done, and so let's just embrace that and embrace violence. And he contrasted that with this kind of healthier, like utopian kind of hope that he thought could guide social movements. But when I started hearing Steve Bannon's rhetoric and listening to speeches by Bannon, and especially seeing the influence of cyclical theories of history like Julius Evola and this mysticism about how history has to be brought down and has to collapse and then be reborn, that that's when I started giving all these presentations because I could see a pattern and I could see the link between Bannon's ideology and fascism. So it was disturbing. <laughs> it's a short answer. It was a disturbing connection to, to see. You mentioned something called the Frankfurt School, which, to which Fromm was attached. Now, my understanding is that there was a group of people from Frankfurt who relocated to Hollywood in order to take over the film industry and um, 
uh, indoctrinate the American masses with something called cultural Marxism. Is that correct? No, uh, no, that, that, that is a, a right-wing myth. And it, it's largely a cultural Marxism is essentially a modernization of Judeo-Bolshevism, which was the, commun- the, the theory of the Nazis that Jews are part of this like communist conspiracy, that they're also kind of running capitalism and communism, that they're in control of all of culture, and that they're in the process of sort of the sneaking takeover of the world, not only through overt revolution, but ideology. And so this sort of modern version of this, now that the Cold War is over, and now that they can't point to the Soviet Union and say, the Soviet Union is a Jewish conspiracy, the new version of this is the Frankfurt School is a Jewish conspiracy. So the Frankfurt School were Jewish Marxist intellectuals in Frankfurt, Germany, originally, who fled Nazi Germany to the United States and originally settled in New York and some eventually in Los Angeles. Although they actually, ironically, really hated Hollywood. So it's kind of interesting that that, that connection always gets made. But, but I think really the reason that, that fascists and authoritarians fear the Frankfurt School so much is not that the Frankfurt School has really much of any influence over popular culture or universities or anything like that. It's actually really relatively marginal. I'm even trying to get anti-fascists to read the Frankfurt School, and most of them are like, what is that? The real threat, I think, to fascism from the Frankfurt School is that the Frankfurt School did this brilliant study of authoritarianism, and they understand the psychology that leads people to join far-right movements, and they have a really brilliant critique. Now, it's my understanding that this idea or meme about cultural Marxism was developed on the fringes of the right some years ago, but it does appear to have become a more popular term and used to explain all sorts of political phenomena. Can you talk about how this concept or this claim went from the fringes to the, in many cases, quite mainstream? And I think this is probably an interesting study in terms of the porous borders, so to speak, between the far right and mainstream conservatism and how those borders are kind of breaking down. So, you know, now we have white nationalists like Stephen Miller in the Trump administration, for example. I mean, originally it sort of moved from paleoconservative circles and neo-Nazi circles sort of by means of the sorts of people you would find around Pat Buchanan, I don't know if Buchanan actually uses the term, but it would be the sort of, he might have used a different term, but he was worried about this kind of thing. William S. Lind, who wrote kind of these sort of apocalyptic texts, an apocalyptic novel called Victoria about kind of a coming race war where militias would take back the United States, was very influential in far-right circles, but also was able to sort of tread into mainstream conservative circles. And Lind, along with Paul Weyrich, really raised this issue pretty broadly. Lind actually met with Trump in the lead up to the election, which is something I think needs to be thought about more. Then you have people like Paul Gottfried. Paul Gottfried is also very marginal in terms of fringe, but has people around him that are more influential. So it's just, I think it's it's a kind of case of mainstreaming from the far right into now we're hearing it on Fox News. Something that's confusing about this meme or conspiracy theory is that at the same time as there's this popular idea on the right that you know, the left are secretly pulling all of the strings on you know, culture and education, the right have never been more powerful. Why do you think they need to have this looming over them? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think part of the psychology is that they always have to see themselves as these embattled victims, these heroes in this war that they've been losing. 
it, it's one way you can not have to make an argument for your views. You can just sort of see your enemies as brainwashed. They're all manipulated and sort of magically controlled by this secret conspiracy. And that's why your views, if you're, say, a social conservative, for example, are no longer popular, not because there have been powerful arguments made and powerful social movements had that have changed people's minds legitimately. So you, I think you get to feel persecuted and in the right, and you no longer need to tell anyone why why you believe what you believe, because they're all just uh, sheep manipulated by this conspiracy. Yeah, we were talking about Steve Bannon earlier. I was wondering if you could give us an update on how Steve's going. The last time we discussed him on the show, he'd just set up a Chinese government in exile with Miles Gao, which, according to QAnon, is now the uh, de facto Chinese government. So that's good. Oh, great. And, <laughs> and then uh, the next minute, he we were seeing him uh, being arrested for participating in what might be the most obvious grift of all time. So what's going on with Steve? Yeah, I don't know what's going on with the arrest. Uh, I really hope that that sticks. He seems to be facing a charge concerning this build the wall campaign that he had, which was rather sketchy, where he was getting money from people and then did a kind of photo op performance art thing with some friends on the border of Mexico a couple years ago. But one of the things I'm really concerned about in terms of recent things with Steve Bannon is this new book by Benjamin Teitelbaum, I think is pretty worrying. And Teitelbaum's uh, War for Eternity is this new look at Steve Bannon's association with the traditionalist school. And this is a far-right school of thought that emphasizes the need to destroy and rebuild society in a sort of historical cycle. And Teitelbaum, I think, is actually, and I'm sure he would disagree with my formulation of this because he's very careful, but I read him as normalizing this ideology and kind of making it seem cool and popularizing it. And I'm concerned about about this too because he has a paper out that's caused some debate where he talks about the need to form friendships with fascists in order to understand them. And so he's kind of palling around with Steve Bannon on the border. In fact, he has a chapter about that whole campaign that has gotten Bannon arrested, where Bannon is sort of talking about Julius Evola and these various capital T traditionalist school thinkers on the border and the mystical nature of walls and nations and so on, which is kind of comical in retrospect now that he's been arrested off of this boat by the Postal Service, but also concerning. And it's concerning, I think, too, because of the way it resonates with so many other far-right ideologies. Like we're, you know, with accelerationism, the fantasies of militia movement people, and so on, right? There's this growing sense here that the country has to be destroyed and rebuilt. And frankly, I, you know, not to get off topic, but I really don't think this election is going to be in any way normal. And I think people need to be prepared for the possibility that even if Trump is not reelected, that he might try to stay in office and sort of ride a wave of, of conflict and destruction. You mentioned accelerationism. We've seen groups like The Base and Adam Woffen recently that sort of embrace these similar ideas. What's the connection between the sort of stuff that Bannon's putting down and what they're picking up? A lot. I mean, they're reading some of the same people. So if you look at the literature of, you know, Slavros, the people that that were influencing the Iron March forums gave rise to Adam Waffen and some of these accelerationist groups. They were reading Julius Evola a lot, um, Savitri Devi. They're fascinated by this exact same theory of the fourth turning or the fourth period in history where history has to be destroyed and rebuilt. And so it's, I think the difference would be, of course, that Bannon would not 
at least openly embrace the anti-Semitism of um, the accelerationists. But it, it's a very similar ideology and worldview, really drawing from the same thinkers. Speaking of being friendly with fascists, it was uh, just a couple of years ago that Steve Bannon was scheduled to speak at the New Yorker Festival, and uh, which that performance was eventually cancelled, if I recall correctly. But the response of some in Australian media was to actually publicly declare that this was a good thing. I guess on one level, it seemed to be suggestive of a certain witlessness on the part of some amongst, I guess, those of a more liberal opinion. So what do you think is the kind of reasons for someone who's not a fascist, who may consider themselves a liberal, but feels compelled to give these sorts of uh, personalities a platform? And what is it, do you think, if anything, they're you know, failing to acknowledge or failing to understand about the dangers that are posed by figures like Bannon? Yeah, that is such a great question. And I think part of it is there's a naivete about the way fascists deal with truth and with language. So there's this, the, the liberal assumption is that we can debate these people because they will state their ideas, we will state our ideas, and we will just determine which ideas are better. But fascists really don't view truth in the same way that most people view truth. So you use language to gain power, and the inner truth of the world really isn't about reason, it's about violence. So if you can use truth to get ahead, that's fine, right? But argument is also used to confuse people, to pretend to be joking. And this is a long, long tradition. Like Jean-Paul Sartre writes about this, Adorno writes about this. So since the period of, of, of the Nazis, people have been writing about about the unseriousness or the joking nature or the dishonest nature of the way fascists engage in debate. But we've kind of forgotten that. And so when the alt-right came along in the U.S. and people realized these people were sharing memes online, people in a lot of the public discussion around this were like, well, maybe they're not as serious, maybe they're more lighthearted, or maybe they're not quite literally Nazis. But this has kind of always been the case. And so I think one reason why you don't want to just put them on a platform and debate them is that you're really not going to have a debate. You're going to have a kind of show in which someone tries to manipulate an audience, manipulate space to gain whatever they can gain for it, right? So publicity, people getting offended and sharing sharing their message or whatever whatever they can get out of it strategically from that situation. But so that's like I I guess part of it. The other the other part of it is just like, you know, the harm that these arguments can do, right? And so I, I really don't think every view needs to be heard if it's going to be dehumanizing and harmful and violent to people in the audience. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Joan Braun about the far right. Speaking of making friends with fascists, uh, one of your other areas of research is uh, into something called a compassion narrative. Could you explain what a compassion narrative is and why they might be problematic. So there are many people who have left white supremacist and neo-Nazi movements and other hate groups and who publicly share their stories about how they got in and how they got out, usually with an aim of, of persuading other people to leave these movements or not to join or helping people understand how they can get people out of these groups. But what I've found is there's, there's kind of a peculiar pattern where And there are dozens and dozens of these stories. Like if people have heard a particular one, it's not like I'm naming that particular person because it's, it's really not the case. But the story always works like this. You know, I was a terrible neo-Nazi 
or white supremacist or whatever. And then I met this nice person from some marginalized group, some person of color or a Jew or a Muslim uh, or whatever, who was kind to me. And, and the, the way the story always plays out too, there's like this kind of shock at the unexpected kindness by this person, a sense of cognitive dissonance. Like, why is it that this person who's from this bad group is being nice to me? And then this experience of shame at having dehumanized a group of people that has such nice people in it. And I think this is, for one thing, not a realistic picture in a lot of cases of how people get out of hate groups. It's a, it's a narrative that people like to tell. And it's a kind of salvation story, you know, like, like people who have been like saved by Jesus or whatever will tell these stories, you know, like I was a drug addict, I was a, you know, a prostitute or whatever, and then I found the Lord, right? And the story kind of goes, I was a neo-Nazi and then I found compassion, but I think there there are some possible harms to telling these stories all the time in the mass media. And I also think that the possible benefits are pretty unclear. So there hasn't really been any study on whether telling these stories gets anyone out of hate groups, for example. There's a lot of talk about counter-narratives right now as a kind of buzzword. And people who are in sort of countering extremism kinds of circles want to produce counter-narratives stories that will convince people not to join hate groups or terrorist groups of other kinds. And there's really no consensus on whether telling narratives at all is helpful in getting people out of hate groups or convincing them not to join them. There's a great deal of debate about whether counter-narratives are effective in any respect. But the one thing that people agree about is that the source of a counter-narrative has to be seen as trustworthy. And if you are a white nationalist or something like that, a former white nationalist is automatically untrustworthy because they're seen as a race traitor or, you know, a, a cop or something like that. So I'm personally not persuaded this has some sort of effect at getting people out of hate groups or preventing them from joining them. And I'm concerned about the impact of telling large numbers of people through the mass media that that it's some uh, they'll, they'll clarify that it's not the job of marginalized people. Sometimes they'll say that it's not the job of marginalized people to do this kind of outreach to dangerous people who want to kill them. But I think the subtext is often that it kind of is, that this is the only thing that they, they will say, the only thing that could have de-radicalized me is this kind of compassionate outreach. Antifa throwing rocks at me would never have helped. The only thing that can do anything is compassionate outreach. So essentially what communities are being told is, hey, if you are under threat, you have two options. Like you can either do outreach to people who may want to harm you, and that seems dangerous, or you can kind of submit to experts and just kind of let the counterterrorism think tanks and the police and these former neo-Nazis uh, fix uh, your community if they get around to it. <laughs> and so it, it doesn't leave much room for empowerment and and struggle on behalf of people who are are victims or targets. And I, I really have to wonder too, if you're a victim of hate crime, what is it like to hear the perpetrator kind of being applauded and embraced on television and forgiven publicly, kind of ritualistically, now that they've received compassion. So I just think there really needs to be more study on this and more thought about potential impacts. And it, there really hasn't been any serious study of the, the use of these narratives, why they're being used, what impact they're having. None of that's being studied in any sort of database way. That's, um, we recently spoke with, uh, Shannon Martinez, who is an ex neonazi, and she made a very similar point that it wasn't really fair to expect the people that she was directly harming to then be compassionate towards her. But I guess I would associate the compassion narrative phenomenon more, less with people like her and more 
with uh, people like Johnny Lee Clary, for example, who was an ex-Klansman who would often visit Australia and uh, tell about how uh, he left the the clan and found Christ. And generally, uh, it seems like people with these narratives are also pushing something new. Is that mm-hmm. something you've uh, you've witnessed? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's it's pretty pervasive throughout the de-radicalization space in terms of formers, including the ones that are really well-intentioned. You'll hear this kind of subtext when they're asked for advice about how to help de-radicalize people. There's a, there's a sort of public narrative that's being given out about how compassion heals. And so I, I do want to say, I, I don't think it's just a few bad apples. Like I do think it's like a structural, like systemic discourse that people often aren't even aware they're engaging in. But it also enables the kind of thing you're talking about, where there are people on the far right who are able to use this discourse to give cover to themselves and to allies on the far right. So one thing you can do, for example, is you can sort of, you can accuse the left of harming de-radicalization efforts by asking hard questions or by holding people accountable by saying that really only compassion can heal and you're not being compassionate enough. So I see a lot of that discourse around um, light upon light, for example, which is one of the more controversial de-radicalization groups in the U.S., which has been widely condemned by some of the more mainstream members of the de-radicalization industry, so to speak. And then you have people like, you know, people that have supposedly de-radicalized but very clearly haven't, who are relying on this emphasis on compassion to basically whitewash their reputations. I don't know the story you mentioned, I'm going to look it up, but if you think like people like Tommy Robinson, for example, who supposedly was, you know, leaving the English Defense League and then joined Quilliam, which was a de-radicalization group in England, uh, and then very quickly continued to promote Islamophobic rhetoric, starting a chapter of Pegida and, you know, just sort of moving from one hate group to another, eventually getting denounced by Quilliam, but was able to gain cover for quite a while as this moderate, de-radicalized Islamophobe. And, you know, now there's this guy, Jack Buckby, who seems to have a similar kind of narrative where he's promoting Islamophobia, xenophobia, but claims because he's no longer a Nazi that he's been de-radicalized and is actually a de-radicalization expert. Another person, too, I think that people should look at is the situation around Matt Heimbach. So Matt Heimbach was an organizer of Unite the Right and the, the torch-lit Charlottesville march that where Heather Heyer was killed. And was a really important figure in the alt-right. And just in the past several months, he's reinvented himself as this, you know, de-radicalized figure and still is publicly promoting fascist ideology. So he's, for example, promoted David Irving, the Holocaust denier, Kodrianu, the Romanian fascist he calls a saint. He has a podcast that just came, another episode of a podcast that just came out. So like it, like he's continuing to just promote this narrative. His same, as far as I can tell, I don't tell any difference between his narrative now and six months ago. And he's just getting a getting a pass because he's using the cover of, of de-radicalization. So anyway, this this uh, I'm just yeah, I'm concerned on all different kinds of fronts that this emphasis on that showing people compassion transforms them might actually be giving people cover, might actually be giving room to abuse. But like, I want to be clear too, that like, I'm not against compassion. (laughs) And I think it's almost common sense. It's so common sense, in fact, that compassion reaches people better than meanness, that you almost have to have been a member of a hate group for that to seem like a profound revelation to you. 
Like it's, it's clearly true that if you want to help people who are being sucked down far right rabbit holes, uh, you have to use compassion and kindness. If you want to reach them in that kind of way, if your goal isn't just to protest them or disempower them, but your goal is to rescue this individual person for whatever reason, obviously you have to be nice to them <laughs> if you're trying to rescue or transform someone. But I don't think that's, I don't think sort of compassion for marginalized groups as the, the way to end fascism is the narrative we want to be putting out at a time when we really need mass social movements and we need to be people, we need people to be aware of of the dangers that they face and really thoughtful about boundaries that can keep them and their communities safe. One of the things that occurs to me when you're talking about the you know importance or the esteem that's given to compassion is there often seems to be some maybe conceptual confusion about in this field that seems to adopt, you know, many are advocating adopting a kind of therapeutic framework, which I guess has its place, but this is often often confused with in my experience anyway, a more properly political approach to combating fascism, fascist ideology and fascist movement. I'm wondering what you can say about that, especially drawing from your studies of people like uh, Eric Fromm and others and how they came to understand the kind of, I guess, therapeutic or psychoanalytic dimensions of responding to this phenomena and uh, political responses based on I guess, social movements. Yeah, exactly. I think this is actually one of the places where the Frankfurt School and Fromm in particular can be really helpful to anti-fascism because Fromm had a theory of human nature that he took largely from Marx and Freud and he developed a sort of analysis of, you know, how we can think about people as agents responsible for their own actions, but also shaped by the systems that they're in and having a certain having certain tendencies toward particular kinds of character based on their context. Like, you know, under capitalism, for example, Fromm says there's a rise of the marketing character of the person who tries to self-promote, who tries to sort of sell their personality and to find validation in, in receiving, receiving the kind of support that feels like being purchased like a product. And that's kind of a particular thing that becomes more prominent under capitalism. So if people are becoming fascists, if people are be joining the far right, if people are joining hate groups, there are social conditions that may prime individuals to do that. And there's also the political context. So it's, it's psychological, it's social, and it's political. And people are going to respond to the particular questions their society presents. And if they can't find good answers on the left because the left isn't reaching them, then they may go elsewhere if they feel a sense of outrage at economic injustice, for example. So it's really difficult to balance all these things, right? Because I think people are responsible for their choices, but they also have a variety of different conditions shaping them. So I think that would be helpful to think about because I really find that when a lot of people talk about fascism and the far right, it tends to break down in one of two directions. So either fascism is seen solely as a social movement and there's a tendency on the left to think if we just have more of us in the streets or superior force, that we can defeat this just by superior strength. Like, they're a mass of people, we're a mass of people, we need more of us out there. And then there's also a tendency among people who take the more social work, de-radicalization kind of approach to see fascism totally an abstraction from its dimension as a social movement seeking power and always already connected to sources of power. So there's a tendency to see fascism as 
you know, sort of a fringe crime problem or as just a result of childhood trauma. And I think those things really neglect a lot of the reality of fascism. For one thing, because people going into this movement, especially right now, especially in the United States, the context I know best, but other places as well, it's a pathway to power and success. You're not necessarily signing up to go to jail or to, you know, to die in, you know, some sort of imagined race war. You could be on a pathway to a great job at Breitbart or something. And so we have to analyze the social situation and the political situation. We have to fight fascism as a social movement. But I think if we don't understand people's individual psychological aspects as well, then we can't figure out how to counter-recruit people. We can't figure out how to build the kind of movement and the kind of society that makes fascism less possible. So, for example, if people are searching for meaning and they feel a void of meaning in their life and the left is simply asking people hypothetically to, you know, show up at the march on Sunday at three and isn't building community and isn't building culture and isn't engaging people in, you know, the questions of meaning, then we're going to we're going to also lose people to the far right. And not that we have to bend over backwards and, and like... If people are already in these movements, you have to be careful. We can't concede our our aims. We have to fight racism and not moderate our demands for these people. But I think there are social and psychological reasons why people are seeking out these movements that we could address. Looking at both of those dimensions, I think, is really essential. We've been talking a little bit about the CVE industry, countering violent extremism. It seems to me that a lot of the people involved in that have sort of, especially in the, uh, in the, you know, the white supremacist space, have come directly from spending the last 20 years looking at Islamists, and that there might be a bit of baggage uh-huh. from that. Is that something that you see? Definitely. Definitely. That's where the funding is, for the most part. And in the United States, there was one organization that was going to get a grant under Obama for doing de-radicalization work of of white supremacists, but their funding got revoked under Trump. So there's nobody currently being funded um, this way that I know of. But certainly in Europe, a lot of the organizations that get people out of hate groups are funded by the same pots of money devoted to preventing people from joining ISIS, for example. And the, the theoretical framework around that is already depoliticized, for one thing. So counterterrorism theorists that try to get people out of like ISIS, there's almost a taboo on talking about uh, foreign policy. So you have to kind of see these people as products of particular psychological conditions and particular rhetorical appeals. But looking at their rage at foreign policy issues is kind of taboo. And there's also an incentive to view both of these things through exactly the same lens, that going into ISIS and becoming a neo-Nazi, for example, have like exactly the same kinds of drivers. I'm not sure if that's true. I'm not, an, I'm not an expert on ISIS, but I can see the fact that people have a huge incentive to talk that way. And I also am thoughtful about thinking about some of the theories that have blamed victims for radicalization. So for example, one of the major theorists who's been influential on thinking about de-radicalization is this guy, um, Roger Eatwell. And Eatwell had this theory of cumulative extremism. And essentially what cumulative extremism is, is it's the theory that different extremist groups, different extremist movements 
and build each build off each other and encourage each other. And so you have if you have more extremist movements in society, even if they're very ideologically opposed, they'll keep amplifying each other in various ways. And in particular, he was talking about English Defense League and fundamentalist Muslim clerics in Britain. And it's so interesting because this is essentially the EDL's own line about itself, right? The EDL thinks that it's a product of Muslim extremism, that it's just a natural response to this crisis, right? And so you have de-radicalization networks feeding back the far right's own narrative to people and saying, well, look, you know, you're right. You were drawn into the EDL because of the fundamentalist Muslim clerics. You just need to kind of realize there are some nice ones too, which doesn't necessarily get people past their Islamophobia fully. Because if you think about it by analogy, like if someone, you know, blamed particular Jews for anti-Semitism, that would never fly, and rightly so, right? Like that would be considered victim blaming right off, would not be tolerated in the de-radicalization field. But Islamophobia gets a pass. So yeah, I do find that very concerning. That sort of feedback loop brings to mind uh, Angela Nagel's book, Kill All Normies, where she suggests that, uh, you know, the alt-right was sort of driven by these Tumblr SJWs. What what did you make of uh, that narrative? Yeah, that's a very problematic book. She really takes the alt-right at their word, which is really the problem there, I think. So the alt-right, you know, when they say like, oh, you know, we just exist because (laughs) These leftists are so hard-nosed, they have no sense of fun, they're these moralizing bigots who won't let us talk. She just sort of accepts all of these narratives, which in some cases people really believe, but in a lot of cases were just manipulation, and a kind of manipulation that fascists and the far right have been using for decades. It's really not even new. This, like, you know, like Holocaust deniers for decades have been saying, like, oh, we just want free speech, right? (laughs) Or, you know, people just say, oh, we just want gun rights. And, like, if you look at the Turner Diaries, for example, the Turner Diaries is, you know, the narrative uh, is supposed, the terrorist war is supposedly kicked off by attempting to take away white people's guns, right? So there's this kind of ongoing thread of, you know, just the right framing themselves as victims attacked by the left. And she just takes them at their word, essentially, I think. Are there some people on the left who need to chill out? <laughs> like, obviously, yes. Like, but, <laughs> but, but I don't think we can blame the left for the right in the sort of simplistic way that she does. Speaking of uh, blaming the left for the right, some would argue that, the, the su- well, the success of the right as a popular movement is predicated upon the failure of the left. At the same time, there's an idea that one of the reasons we're seeing support for the right, especially from, uh, you know, wealthy donors and, and so on, is the far right is a counter-revolutionary force. And historically speaking, that's one of the accounts given for its, you know, emergence. It was in a moment of crisis where there was a, a revolutionary crisis in Europe and there needed to be some kind of popular force that would beat back, you know, communism and socialism and so on. So how do you see the kind of, I guess, political calculus in terms of both understanding the role that uh, fascism and the far right plays in contemporary society? And to what extent do you think it is actually a preventative measure to prevent the emergence of more freedom-giving alternatives that the left claims to want to embody? I I do think there's sort of a a genuine popular social movement on the far right that exists that's not just being manipulated by capitalists or people in power, but there are also all different kinds of ways that it's being used and that it's certainly advantageous 
in various ways to people who want to stave off socialism or crush the left. I think a great example of that is if you look at the recent protests against masks and against the quote unquote shutdown of the economy. In my area, for example, these protests were like about half or more organized by Koch brothers funded think tanks. The people that showed up to these protests were, you know, genuinely fired up about the conspiracy theories they believed in and had a very authentic devotion to, you know, fighting masks as a symbol of tyranny. But they were being played, they were being manipulated by people who who had to have known better, who surely did not all believe those conspiracy theories, but who really wanted to open up the economy again at the expense of human life and were willing to see some members of the working class die to get the kind of economic system they wanted up and running again. Does that speak to it? Because I, I feel like people kind of, there's a tendency to see it either as a popular social movement or as a product of capitalism. And I think like both of those things are true. Yeah, yeah, that does. I guess the other thing is that there's a seeming irrationality at the core of fascist politics, but also there's a necessity to try and, you know, render that intelligible. You know, is this, so I guess in terms of its uh, political functioning, often it can seem to act in ways that support existing power structures and bolster them and, you know, further inequality and so on. Again, maybe this gets back to adopting therapeutic approaches to people who find themselves attached to these movements and acting in perverse ways. That is thinking that they're acting in their own interests, their own best interests, but actually furthering other people's political agenda. How, how do you tackle, you know, like, do you regard fascism as a, essentially an irrational doctrine or how do you, how do you think it can be rendered most intelligible and best fought? I think fascism is irrational, to be honest. I, so, like, you know, one of the books that really influenced me years ago, I, you know, I was I was really fond of Michael Parenti's work and still am. And he wrote a book about fascism as rational. And I think I agree with him to the extent that I see the ways in which fascism can be useful to capitalism. So if you are facing an economic crisis if you're facing public discontent and the potential breakdown of the capitalist order, then you can get people fighting each other. You can get people seeing the other, the racial other or whatever group as the enemy instead of seeing the ways in which capitalism itself is driving whatever conditions, economic conditions are going on. And anti-Semitism has historically worked really well that way by equating the Jews and the capitalists um, and sort of saying we can clean up capitalism by just getting rid of these people and not dealing with capitalism itself. So I do think that's real. I do think that exists. But I, I also think there are people in these movements who I think most people in these movements are genuinely fanatical, true believers who really do buy into the ideology and the ideology itself beyond the way that it's used or, you know, sort of used to shore up capitalism. The ideology itself is deeply irrational. It, it's sort of a rejection of reason itself. That, you know, reason is for intellectuals and, and not for people who are strong and powerful and who are able to assert themselves and who put violence and victory above these kind of, from their standpoint, silly humanitarian norms. So I think there's something really deeply irrational about fascism. Also, like the, the degree to which it's projection that they always see in the other all the things they fear in themselves. 
it, it's both, right? Like it's, it's rational in the sense that the Koch brothers <laughs> can kick back and, and sign off on it because they see the ways in which it can help their political agenda. But certainly for some 19 year old sharing memes online, it's, um, it's an irrational social force. Just finally, uh, Eric Fromm, of course, had critical theory. We've just seen Trump announce that uh, all funding is to be cut for critical race theory. Mm. Uh, are you worried that that uh, funding cap will expand to the from critical theory as well? Yeah, I mean, these people really don't make distinctions, right? <laughs> and so I think they don't really distinguish between critical theory and critical race theory. Um, it's all just one conspiracy to them. And I think the way they're framing it, it's certainly clear that, that my colleagues of color are going to get harder hit first. But this is a very anti-intellectual move. It's very scary. It's um, it's a real crackdown on on freedom of thought, actually, you know, which they always claim they're defending, right? So it, it's very scary, and it, I, I, you know, I wonder how it'll affect uh, universities and campuses as we try to think about these issues with our students and as students try to organize and push back. It's um, I, I don't think we have we're we're not fighting on the same playing field that we have been. In the past, we're looking at a more totalitarian context. So it's it's really, really scary. I'm trying to think of a way to have my cake and eat it too by asking <laughs> you uh, what question uh, would you have wanted us to ask you, but not to, you know, that's sort of a lame question, but I'm going to ask it. What, what do you think people should be paying attention to? I think we are not in a normal time <laughs> in the United States. And I think there's a sort of numbness about the election. And a lot, a lot of people are sort of sitting back and hoping that in November, things will just re uh, resolve themselves. And I think that's a really dangerous way to think. And actually, it's one of the kinds of things from warns about this kind of passivity. It's a kind of escape from freedom. It's the kind of thing that actually leads people to consent to fascism. And Trump has already made very clear that he does not plan to accept the election results if he loses. And so people who just are assuming that that Trump can, you know, be ejected from office and that this will solve the problem. And then, you know, he'll be dragged out kicking and screaming by someone if he loses, or that if Biden somehow gets in despite Trump planning to steal the election if he needs to. This movement that's that's been stirred up that already existed to some extent, but has massively grown and come out of the woodwork and become more public is not going anywhere. And we need to really be ready for mass protests and organizing and activism and not and not become numb in the face of all this. And that's really, really hard because we're in the middle of a pandemic and my part of the country is literally on fire right now. <laughs> and we have people being shoved into unmarked vans by people uh, with no uniforms at protests. That actually happened here in Spokane, actually, a couple of weeks ago, the head of our co-chair of our DSA, Democratic Socialist of America chapter, was... Uh, faced a kind of political arrest um, by a sheriff who didn't like his Facebook posts. So we just have to find the courage and we just have to come together and organize and we have to not wait uh, and hope that things are just going to resolve themselves. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Joan. If people want to read more of your work, uh, joanbraun.com. That's B-R-A-U-N-E.com. Yes, that's good. And I have a link there to my academia.edu page if people want to read like papers and things. When 
it might be time to stop When you knew that I was through That I'd done all I could do Did you really have to milk the final drop? Not content with my mistake Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.